Hello, I'm Cormac. You're listening to Queerly Beloved, supported by Amazon Music. In this series, I invite DJs and musicians, friends and allies from the LGBTQ plus community to talk about music, queerness and anything else that shapes their unique story. It is my hope that in sharing our individual experiences, we can learn and grow and focus on our similarities rather than our differences. You can find all of the music mentioned in today's episode and each episode at the link in the episode description. It is hard to overestimate the influence Peaches has had on modern music. The word iconic gets overused these days, but musical icons change things and make things easier for those who come after. And for that reason, Peaches is undoubtedly a musical icon. Would we have a Kim Petrus or a Nicki Minaj today had Peaches not already smashed down the door? I've been a fan for many years, and it is, of course, a great honor to welcome her to the podcast. Dearest Peaches, I'm so thrilled to be chatting with you today. Thank you. Thank you. It's going to be fun. As I do with all of my guests, I'm going to ask you who you are and how you identify. I am Peaches, and I identify as a fruit. (laughs) And I will also ask you, what do you do and how long have you been doing it? What do I do? Well, I know how long I've been doing it my whole life. (laughs) But um, specifically, I think you're talking about Peaches. So I would call myself mostly a performance artist and a rabble rouser. Absolutely. And I've been doing it probably for like 23 years. And um, where did you grow up and what was that scenario like? I grew up in a conservative Jewish family on the outskirts of Toronto, like in Toronto, but right on the edge there in a very new suburban neighborhood. The most exciting thing was that a 7-Eleven showed up that I could almost walk to, but I could drive to it and get a big gulp, uh-huh. you know, like stuff like that. But I was very connected to um, downtown Toronto and would sneak away and things like that. But I grew up in suburbs, uh, went to private Jewish school since I was in uh, kindergarten to grade six in Canada. You say grade six. I don't know in England what you say. I know in America they say sixth grade. I say conservative Jewish in terms of like culturally conservative, going to synagogue on holidays, not really discussing like Judaism a lot, but but it's implied. Mm-hmm. Uh, immigrant grandparents from Poland on both sides. Um, parents both grew up in uh, downtown Toronto. So, Was there a big Jewish community there in Toronto? It's huge, very big community. Mm. I mean, my neighborhood was not particularly a Jewish neighborhood, but the community is very, very big and very conservative. I feel Did like, you have brothers? Mm, tell me. Yes, yeah, so I have I have a brother that was five five I still have a brother. He's five years older than me. And I uh I had a sister three years older than me who passed away three years ago um from complications after beating cancer. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when she was like twenty three and um 
had two children and ended up in uh, a wheelchair. And uh, for lack of better explanation, she was basically a paraplegic. Mm. But an amazing, amazing, positive, hilarious person. Just a bunch of trouble. Just trouble. <laughs> Did she stay in Canada? No, she um, she lived in New York, in New York City, uh, with her then husband. Um, and they lived a good life in New York. And then when it got too difficult for her to function there, they moved to Largemont. Mm. Then there was a lot of drama. And um, she lived on her own, which, you know, with 24-hour care. Uh-huh. But she was happy. And my brother lives in California with um, his wife, no kids. They got a dog and a cat, and they love their life. And mm-hmm. they live the L.A. life. My brother is an editor. He edits a lot of series now. He used to edit more movies. His wife is a food writer, but also a culture writer. So were you the baby of the family? Were they both older? I'm the baby. Ah, me too. <laughs> You're the baby. How many brothers and sisters do you have? I have two brothers and I have a sister. And uh, there's like four years between my sister and I. And then there are 10 and 12 years between my brothers and I, which has been an absolute blessing when it came to musical education. Mm. (laughs) Because they're both like massively into music. Like one was very into, I guess, the more electronic side. Well, also like Joy Division and stuff, but everything that came after that from Manchester, I would say, like, you know, New Order and anything kind of uh, synthesized. I remember also like Human League albums and things. And then my other brother, the slightly younger one, who's still older than me, I must say. He always will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was much more into guitar stuff. So like The Damned and The Clash and The Sex Pistols. And Mm -hmm. we used to have like a Johnny Rotten poster on on the wall when I was growing up and when I was a kid. And I was like terrified and fascinated. He was also quite into David Bowie and things. So, so my brother mm-hmm. had a waterbed, and he mm-hmm. had constructed a light show in his room. He had by his bed an analog um, eight-switch light board, where he would have a black light that would shine on a black light poster. He had a strobe light. He had a caution light Get that out. he stole from I don't know, like some construction site. He had a blue light and a red light. So that was the scene in his bedroom. He had tons of cassettes that he had made, you know, and he was very into Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and he was very into the Beatles, but he was also into the Ramones and he was into Elton John, all this, you know, and he was into Genesis. Um, and my sister was you know, also into Genesis, but then she was into like Earth, Wind and Fire. And uh-huh. she, w- she was um, she was the disco dancer, you know, like they would go to like underage disco clubs in the strip malls. Mm-hmm. And um, my brother had shirts that said disco sucks. You know? Oh, really? 
<laughs> my my dad was more into like Harry Chapin. I don't know if you know who that is. I know the name, yes. But he was also really into Donna Summer. Mm. Yeah, which was a huge influence for me. And um, my mother loved Carly Simon. Mm. But my, my dad also loved like Cleo Lane, you know? There's definitely like a, a theme of of funk and and kind of soul running down your your father and your sister somehow there. Yeah, there's definitely like a bit of a groove thing happening. We were we were very into FM radio, you know, like mm. whatever go, went on an FM radio because it, they would play like long songs, you know, like um, the Moody Blues and all these kind of things, you know. So mm-hmm. I had a lot of influence of music. There was this um, AM radio station called Chum in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And like I was obsessed with New Year's Eve because they would play the top 100 of the year. And I would sit there and write down every song with the top 100 of the year from like 1972, 1973, like when I was like, uh, I would be like seven, eight, nine. Wow. And it was funny because I looked it up on the internet. I can you can access that, and I literally knew every song from those years. And I don't know if you know, um, there's this thing you know, like this app called Song Quiz. Okay. And you can pick like 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, blah 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 blah. And I just kill it in the 70s and yeah and of course the 80s but it's like but the 70s like I don't even know how I know these weird like mm. Tony Orlando and Don like Tyler yellow ribbon around the old oak tree I don't know if you even know these weird songs Yeah I know I know I know that song yeah but isn't that crazy the way we absorb music I mean I always kind of felt like I grew up in a house where music was something that brought people together mm-hmm. but it was also seen as something to be a bit uh, pushed away because it might be a distraction from schoolwork. I mean, basically now looking back on it, my brother is like an incredible guitarist and mm. was an artist, mm-hmm. but no one in our house had the capacity or the understanding that that was also something to be very nurtured. Like he had to nurture it himself, really. And and because he spent his entire time on the guitar, it was like seen as this kind of distraction from from schoolwork. But I often felt like, God, if if Everything I learned at school was in like a song lyric. Oh my God. I would be like scoring A's. You like are speaking everywhere. my language, first of all, because <laughs> I didn't realize you could be a musician because of that, you know? So, mm. I mean, I was listening to all this music and I was obviously developing a panache for singing and I obviously could hold a tune, which nobody really could. My dad could, but nobody else in my family. So I was just, mm. whenever they played, I would. I would pick up the family favorite song was um, Joy to the World. You know that song? Oh, yeah. Jeremiah. I just remember that because we'd listen to AM radio in the background, especially in summers. We um, rented a cottage, so we'd drive up and we'd always be in the background and my mom would be doing whatever. But my time alone was just hearing those songs. Yeah. But never realizing that that could actually be forming a life interest. And ne- and never never seeing it as a skill no, or as no, a value. No. Because not everyone can do that, you know? Yeah. I remember like instead of studying like 
I was writing out lyrics. That's I remember so writing out all the lyrics of Friggin' in the Riggin' from um, the Dead Kennedys. Well, you're cool. <laughs> I was writing out lyrics to Billy Joel songs. <laughs> yeah, well, you're cooler. You're cooler. It's funny because um, two things about lyrics. One is that my friends used to ask me to write them out the lyrics to like songs for them. Uh-huh. And the other uh, was just that beautiful feeling of opening um, a gatefold album mm. and finding all the lyrics there and reading along like it was a big storybook. It was a massive surprise to me when I started to make music and would go in the studio with someone because I, I like working, collaborating and, and working with someone or, or people and like, you know, having these musical overlaps and both loving a, a song and it blew my mind that we would love the same song but they'd never listened to the lyrics oh. because they were listening to the the structure and the bass and mm. different things and I would be like but how can you love it if you don't know what they're saying like I'm always the lyrics pulls me in like 90% or 80% of the track I'm very much focused on the message the message mm. funny that you would say the message because I was thinking about Chrissy Hine just now uh-huh. When you were saying all this and yeah. her lyrics and how they were, they meant so much to me. And, you know, like tattooed love boys and just like how mm. sassy she was. And then just like her kind of way she would deliver her lyrics, which wasn't really like, wasn't really like singing, singing until later on. I just, it was kind of like this, mm. this like a bit of a deadpan sassiness that really is cool. Did you ever get the lyrics wrong? Did I get? Oh, oh, yeah. When you loved a song and you're like singing along for years, like with the wrong lyrics. Okay, so I really, you're going to find out that I have a lot of very, very extreme pop memories. So, I'm so excited. Do you know, do you know, uh, Hollow Notes, one of my favorites? So, yes. uh, the song She's Gone. Yes. I always thought it was my dad tried to bone me with a salmon. <laughs> I literally <laughs> sang that. I found out it's I love my dad tried to bore me with a sermon. Oh, I love it. I love it. My I love dad it. Tried to, I was like, that is, what is your dad doing? Yeah. I mean. Trying to bone you yeah, with a salmon. I have a friend in Ireland who's a big ABBA fan. And for Chikatita, Chikatita, you and I, he used to think that she was saying, take your teeth out. You and I know. <laughs> you and I know you're gummy. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so good. You and I know. You know that classic Colin show thing where a non-English speaking person is requesting, is it the Reebok or the Nike? Oh, yeah. Is it the Reebok or the Nike? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the rhythm, the rhythm, the rhythm. So we have to talk about a record or a track. I want to ask you, from that time growing up in Canada with your family and and so many different inputs of music, is there one record that you could choose? And it might just be the record or the track that you would choose today that kind of brings you back there. I couldn't pick one. Do you mind if I ramble on a little bit? Please go ramble, ramble. So I think because I was really trying to like, what was the first? And you know what it was? Mm. Hair the Musical. That's fucking Amazing, though. I used to just, wow. just to sing along with the whole album. I like this, like four-year-old kid going, "Sadami, <laughs> fellatio." 
<laughs> Don't you think this is kind of prophetic? Yeah. I, I didn't know. I didn't hear Conalingus. I was like, Conalingus had, had her ask me. Like, you know. Wow. I loved that. It just had so many different moods. And like, because I love to, you know, like I was a kid. I was four. I loved to dance around and just like, mm. you know, Aquarius and like. My body is walking in space. My body is walking in space. And I could do so many different voices. And mm-hmm. I just got so into it. Um, also, like, deep, deep, deep to my heart was um, the Roberta Flack album, Killing Me Softly. I had that gatefold, you know. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know the cover where it's her. And you see her through a grand piano. Mm. But the piano opened up and then you saw her, like, because wow. she was like kind of behind the piano. And um, Killing Me Softly was the first song that I sang in front of peers for a talent show oh. in fifth grade. Uh-huh. Because my friend could play piano and we pa- we practiced, practiced, practiced. And then when it came time, we got in a fight. Oh. And then everybody turned against me. No. And oh. they told her, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't, don't play the piano for her. I have no idea what happened. So I sang it a cappella. <laughs> And I won. Wow. Amazing. Those are two fucking really cool uh, starts musically, like Hare and Roberta, because it's kind of that out there-ness and then a lot of heart and soul as well. And then, of course, it's a lovely combination. Barbara Streisand was huge in my family, every Jewish family. And um, that was the first song I sang in front of family because... When I was seven, I went to my, um, <laughs> this is so Jewish, this story. When I was seven, we went to New York. <laughs> most of my family lived in New York. They were from Queens in the Bronx. And um, my cousin had a bar mitzvah. Uh-huh. Michael had a bar mitzvah and he had a band at the bar mitzvah. And I said to my mom, um, can I sing with the band? And she said, I don't know. Can you sing? And I said, I think I can. And she's like, well, go ask the band. So I remember the band was eating like they were on their dinner break and they're all eating. And I sang the way that we were like singing about a divorce, divorcee. Wow. You know, like the way we were. <laughs> and I'm seven. But they, I'm sure they all loved it because it's Babs. Because it's Babs. So they said, yeah, sure. And then I had to sing that Godforsaken song. At every New York celebration, <laughs> wedding, bar mitzvah, you know. You were so brave, though. I, I don't know why I wanted to do that, but I did. I would sing in my bedroom, and sometimes I would think, maybe I can sing. But like to sing in front of someone like that took a long, yeah, long I time. Yeah, I really wanted to do that, and I wasn't afraid. I just really wanted mm. to do it. I was like, I need to be up there. But... um. I got obsessed with the Chris Christopherson, Barbara Streisand version of A Star is Born. Probably sang it for, me and my sister sang it for eight months, the whole album. But I get it. I love those choices. Did you did you get into the remake of The Star is Born? I, you know, had a hard time because I'm so dedicated to that version. But um, I think I have to go back and watch it again. Okay, we're off to a great start. I'm very, I'm very, I'm very happy. So the... Family's quite conservative, not super religious. You're in your bedroom singing hair. Was that, um, <laughs> not in my bedroom. We had like we had a den. We had a den where that's where the record player was. Wow. So so we would put on the record. That was the room mm-hmm. that we would put on the music. 
the thing about conservatism is that it gives a good um, backdrop to anything that's not conservative. Did you notice any queerness around or... For me, you know, the first time I saw Mark Almond mm. or Sylvester, I knew there was something there which I strongly identified with, but I didn't have the language for it. And and music historically is a home for queer fabulousness. Right. Did you notice any queer people in music? For me it was Joan Jett. Uh-huh. And Grace Jones. Wow. Cuz I was just like so fascinated by Grace Jones as just a being of like androgyny and of of beauty and of not giving a fuck, but also just so much class and trash and all of it. Mm. And then Joan Jett, it was just like all the, you know, like Grace Jones was like nothing I'd never ever seen before. Joan Jett was just like male posturing that I was like, oh, you could turn it around. Mm. And then Kate Bush is not, you know, not really queer, but I mean, in terms of like a self-made person and building her own studio and growing up with, you know, the kick inside being the first album where I was like, my bro- it's not my brothers, it's not my parents, it's not my sisters, mm-hmm. this is my music. Like, mm. I like this. And then, you know, going through the years and finding out that she stopped music for three years so she could learn how to dance so that she could make a incredible stage show that she did once mm-hmm. um, that I watched over and over on VHS tape. And then also her building her own studio, mm. you know, and the dreaming came out of that first studio recording and I, I was obsessed with it. And then... What came after that? Hounds of Love, like in real time. This was all coming out I mean, for me. So yeah. so um, musically, being able to be powerful as a, a self-made person, Kate Bush, and as a performer and also Grace Jones as just an otherworldly being of like existence. And then Joan Jett as like this flipping the male posturing. Yeah. I mean, that's a great fucking trinity to have, Mm. you know? And I remember like when we would see Grace Jones on the TV, like my family would kind of be, well, what I would notice was like, if you saw like a feminine man on TV, it wasn't, it was kind of something to be ridiculed in like, maybe they wouldn't directly ridicule them in our living room, but you know, a feminine man was kind of looked down upon, let's say, or, or it was a bit, jokey or stupid or but no one had anything to say about Grace Jones because I think everyone was just kind of in awe of her and she was kind there's of nothing you can say there's nothing you can say and uh yeah she's a phenomenon did you read her book yeah I thought it was amazing I'm sure it's full of lies but I, I love it I don't care I don't care either <laughs> like, I don't care either I don't care and and you know what I don't mind a bit of fantasy and lies in my That's pop true. I, d- I, I don't want to see Grace Jones down doing her shopping. No, I want her to, on, in to a newspaper. present herself the way she sees herself because that's her. Yes. Um, yes, yes. So that's what we need from her. What, what, what you were saying about um, male presenting themselves in a more feminine way, and I'm not talking about like the Mark Almonds, but um, it was just so had to be like that in the 80s from hair metal to pop 80s electro hits like Mm. you had to have this femininity to it Mm -hmm. i don't even think they even realized all the 
dragness that was going on. It was just sort of, it was a trend. Some of those, you know, like if I see like Motley Crue or something, I think of those kind of Renaissance paintings of like Frenchmen that are like really decorated with like big hair. And it's kind of that artifice thing of like the masculine being very like pumped Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And it was funny because like that was the time, you know, when you would have more punk or, or rock guys really dressed up. But then that also came across quite macho yeah. in a way. It's so strange. And then you have Prince in the mix of that. And it's like... Prince just broke the mold, like th- those dance moves, those heels. Mm. But no, nobody ever, you could never make fun of Prince either. Prince was wearing like women's lingerie. And I don't remember anybody questioning his sexuality. No. It was fiercely heterosexual. <laughs> yeah, nobody. He already made his symbol which was both. Mm -hmm. He just owned it in a new kind of way. Did you have any queer people or non-heteronormative relatives? Did you have any like interesting relatives? Nope. I don't know, because sometimes I think it's like in the blood somehow, (laughs) like like you, you can kind of trace it back. And like, I always felt like the only gay in the village, but I'm not outing anybody here and I hope no one's listening. But, you know, I have like one, two, three... I had four uncles who never married. Amazing. And now I wonder. I had a cousin, the legend is that she was she was with a truck driving woman. You know, sounds really like they made up some sort of real scenario with her. And she was never talked about. Mm. Uh, I had an interesting uncle who was arty. His, his first wife was arty. She was a painter. They used to laugh a lot. I found out they did a lot of acid together. They were my favorite uncle and aunt, but they kind of fell apart. The reason I I asked those questions really is because until I had people to look up to in pop Mm -hmm. and music, I didn't really have any reason to be happy about my difference or, or to celebrate my, what I would now call queerness or my gay sexuality. Like I, I didn't have any great role models, but music gave me that. Pop gave me that. It gave me like something to be excited about. Pop gave me that. And then also pop gave me a reason to question those things too, Hmm. like lyrically and how it was still under sort of a patriarchal force. I don't even know if it was queer at the time, you know, like, can we even call Nina Hagen queer? I don't know. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm. But way out there and incredible and just... It was just like something different. I didn't understand queerness as much as I just understood art, different, fun, happening, questioning. And also so much of that's a language thing, you know, because it's like language changes and the definitions of things change. And some people are doing these things long before we have the language for that. Yourself included, actually. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if anyone was throwing the word queer or... Non-binary. Non-binary or, or stuff around your music and and I guess in some ways that was opening doors. They were just calling it weird. <laughs> they were just like, is this music? Uh, also, I don't know if you're familiar with Carol Pope. She's a musician. No. She 
had a band called Rough Trade, not the label, but her band was called Rough mm. Trade, which is an incredible name. Amazing name. And they actually did songs for um, the movie Cruisin' with Al Pacino. <gasps> which I love that movie. Oh, really, they have music in there? Yeah. Oh. They have music in there. So go back and listen to that. But um, mm-hmm. Rough Trade had a number one Canadian hit with a song called High School Confidential, which is literally about Carol Pope falling in love with another sexy girl in high school and worried that the principal is going to flirt with her. Wow. And the big line in the song was, she makes me cream in my jeans when she comes my way. Are you serious? Wow. Yeah. And this was, I think, could be 1979, 1980. Radio didn't even realize that that, you know, because it was by a woman or whatever, they didn't even blurp it out. Mm. And then years later, like in 1985, because the song was you know, is a classic. It would be back on the radio. It makes me my jeans. <laughs> so, that, oh, they figured it out. It's so stealth. And that's another great power of pop music and rebellion and art is that you can kind of sneak things in. You know, in the 90s, there was a big hit in the UK when rave culture was kind of seeping into mainstream music culture. And Mr. C and The Shaman had a track called Ebenezer Good. And he was like number one in the charts on the TV every week singing Ease Are Good. But it was disguised as this name of Ebenezer Good. He was telling this story about a guy, but really he was talking about drugs. Right. And people didn't get it. There is like a very magical stealth power of pop music that people kind of maybe get the message later. Well, how did Frankie (laughs) Goes to Hollywood get away with, I mean, relax, don't do it when you want to kill him. You have to choose a a record from the time of, you know, as I hear, like femininity in a strong way, in a rebellious way. When you spoke about Grace Jones and Joan Jett and... um, I'm going to pick The Dreaming. Oh, good choice. Yeah. I got into that later. My my first way into Kate was Hands of Love, really. I love that mine, that I, like, it came out and I was like what an even better album like i'd already been so invested in kate bush Mm. and then that came out in real time i i love that when was the last time an artist that you love came out with a new album that you were like yeah they've just exceeded everything i've ever thought about them and also the sound of that album i think it might have been was it that she kind of went digital then as well or there was something about the sound of that album and that time she wanted to sound like this um peter gabriel album ah. not not shock the monkey but the one before it. she was obsessed with that mm. yeah because they both had that synthesizer didn't they the fair light the fair light he yes. used that and then she she used that on on hands of love i keep meaning to send you that um isn't there like a pink floyd connection to her yeah i think david gilmore kind of discovered her whatever that means okay yeah. Well, she was waiting for the discovery, that's for sure. So you've been in your den, you've been watching TV, you've been listening to albums. When do you start to find your community and how do you find them? I did not find my community. <laughs> I um I didn't realize I was a musician. I had a friend Dave Yamamoto, who taught me guitar when we used to play. I hung around with more like hippie stoner people because they played guitar. So that was like a way into music. Mm -hmm. Um, I started to meet more arty people. 
I was part of this weird band, Particle Zoo, where we were half dancing, half singing. It's a great name. But I got I got kicked out because I just wasn't interesting enough. I I just I went I went into theater. I just thought that I was supposed to do theater because I didn't understand that music was it. So even in theater, the, the queer community was oh that wasn't one, and um, I went into theater saying I want to make cool musicals you know because I grew up with like watching Tommy on TV you know like mm-hmm. Tina Turner do that Acid Queen which blew my mm-hmm. mind or like Phantom of the Paradise the um Brian De Palma 70s rock opera version of Phantom of the Opera things like that so I was like musicals and theater school people were like no we're doing Chekhov we're re-envisioning oh. Ibsen and you know, and I was just like, I'm not into that. I'm not feeling that. So I did go to director school and then I dropped out. And then I didn't really find my, I mean, I had individual friends, but I didn't have a queer community for a long time. Mm. Even when I moved to Berlin, I found it very hard to find, believe it or not, a queer community that I could be a part of. Mm. I know people are going to feel like, what are you talking about? But I mean, I would go to like lesbian parties and it'd be like, no, you're not this way enough. Mm. Or I'd go to like drag nights and they were like, oh, you're not dressed up. You don't look. Mm." And I was into like hip hop and rock and roll and electronic together. And that was just so weird for people. Mm. Like I would like to DJ all three, uh, you know, together. And it was like a revelation (laughs) like that. You know, the only place I could end up was at like white trash fast food, which was like, you know, more like a rock and roll bar that would let me play what I wanted. But that was what Peaches was about. So people started to realize that. But mm. if I would go out and I wasn't like Peaches, it was hard to find a community, you know. I guess I was looking for something that, that needed to come later on. Mm-hmm. You know what? I did find my queer community in Toronto. I will say that mm. with um, Will Monroe, who unfortunately passed of cancer years ago. But they had this incredible, they were an incredible artist and they also would help queer people who moved to Toronto to navigate because they would come from these small cities. And Mm -hmm. they had this amazing party called Vaseline, which brought together BDSM and contemporary art, rock and roll, electro, queerness. It was like the most progressive party. And that's where I played my first shows. Peaches played their first shows there where I was like, wow, okay, here we go. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's where I found my queer community. This is where I ask you about a track from your early clubbing days, but it could also, you know, not necessarily be dance music. It can be um, just from going out and about. I thought about um, how much I used to like Yaz. The Only Way's Up? Uh, Upstairs at Eric's. Oh, sorry, Yazoo, yes. Oh, yes. sorry, I I know some countries called it Yaz and some called it Yazoo because I ah. loved how electronic music and a soul voice together, like that blew my mind. Wow. And that was really big for me. That's incredible. Alison Moyer. And- She's another one that, you know, she had quite, um, in a way, like a tough uh, aesthetic in a way, like it wasn't, she wasn't really being super feminine. It was, it was also a bit punk. It also looked a li- little bit like Sue Catwoman or something, you know, like where mm. where it was a bit like, um, don't mess with me, like stand back somehow. And from what I know from listening to interviews and stuff with her, she's was really quite 
a big softy at the time as well, but she was kind of protecting herself. Yeah. But what an incredible, incredible voice and lyricist and just wow. And uh, Ivan Clark was it? Uh, Vin- Vince, Vince Clark. Vince, Vince Clark. Clark. Yeah, that, you know, I love that first. My Actually, my favorite Depeche Mode album is the first one because it's closest to mm-hmm. Kraftwerk-y sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll forever. That's like my comfort zone. Yeah. And all of that sounds like a bit more DIY, doesn't it? I loved it. Me too. And he was also involved in Erasure. Which I have no connection to whatsoever. Uh, there's There's something quite soulful drama yeah. connected with Andy Bell's voice as well. And that yeah. that thing of merging raw, hard, somewhat cold sounds with warm soul, as you say. Yeah. I mean, I'm still really attracted to that. Yeah. And I think pop music can do that as well in a different in a different way. You can put these quite twee melodies with quite miserable lyrics and mm-hmm. make something amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a, a funny juxtaposition of opposites or something. Normally here I would ask a DJ for a record they might have played in their early sets. Maybe for you I could ask you. No, I I DJed a lot. and Okay, well I'm going to ask you that then. Can you talk to me a little bit about when you started to play records out? Scratching and Rolling. I would always play that Uh from Daft Punk's first album because to me that fused like it was it was dissonant. It was like oh, these rising sounds. It was relentless, mm. and it was powerful. It was punk attitude, but it was totally electronic. So that to me was amazing to play all the time. I would like to ask you, as a busy touring and very successful artist, if I may say. It's tough out there touring. We met on an aeroplane recently. Yeah. And, you know, most people get excited about traveling because they're going on holiday. Mm-hmm. And and often, you know, when travel is such a big part of your work, it, it becomes something else where you say to someone, oh, I'm going to this city. And they're like, oh, you have to go and see this. And you're like, no, I won't be going to see anything. Yeah. I'm going to work. <laughs> I want to ask you, in the midst of all of that and still performing, still making music, which not everyone is able to handle for so long. Do you have a sanity practice? I do actually not have one. And that is a bit of a problem because whenever I come mm. home, I I spin out for three days. I guess my sanity practice is I spiral for like three days after coming home, mm. thinking that everything's going to be fine. Yeah. just And then I'll spiral and it takes me it takes me time to come back. And I, I, I always mm. think it's not going to. I always think, oh, no, I'm just going to play somewhere and come back. But, um, yeah, I haven't given myself permission to say, listen, you're going to feel different when you come back. And it's OK to take a day off mm-hmm. or two to just relax. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you give a lot. You give a lot mm-hmm. when you perform, you know, and I think there is that age-old story of having a bit of a come down after a performance, after a show. I've heard fashion designers talk about it as well. I remember Alexander McQueen, rest in peace, speaking about having very harsh lows after a show. And then I heard also Kim Jones kind of saying he had a more relaxed approach to it and he kind of would have a plan in place after smart. show so he would make sure that he was kind of 
you know, rebalancing in the Maldives or something, something Great. very luxury. But, yeah. you know, just having a plan in practice. I definitely, I mean, I struggle with mental health. Well, I, I would say I manage mental health issues at the moment, but I've had depression since my teens and I've had various attempts at managing it and sometimes really just surviving it. And I still get quite big lows after shows and Monday I really have to have like a self-care plan in place but sometimes I don't and I really suffer because of it like I always say on a Monday I need to go and sit in the sauna or just do something where my mind doesn't get a chance like where I'm so hot that my body's kind of ruling the show you know I'm just sitting there sweating and and just giving my mind that time off but it's tough I think many of us find that tough yeah. and, and struggle with it. And um, I don't know, just learning to self-care in general is yeah. like fucking tough. <laughs> mm-hmm. It doesn't come naturally to me. It's something I... Me either. And it's been going on a long time. I should really remember. Mm. Before I had the sauna, I would lie on the floor and listen to PJ Harvey. I wore my PJ Harvey for you today. Yes, I yes. saw that. And now I still lie on the floor and listen to PJ Harvey quite a lot, but I don't rely on her completely. Do you have music that you turn to when times are a bit tough? It's fine. It's just, <laughs> it's really dark, but it's really, this. do you know the Diamanda Galas album, The Singer? I love Diamanda Galas. Yes. Do you know that the singer mm-hmm. where it's like blues covers, but you don't even recognize them as blues covers? Yes. Does she do Gloomy Sunday or something? Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, fuck. Yeah. That that album that gets me because I can just I just get into it. Yeah. I get it. Dark is very welcome on on yeah. on these chats. But then also the other day I was you know because I played a secret gig and then after OJ from uh, Zebra Cats DJed and he was playing you know MIA. Road runner, road runner. And then I was like, that's a Jonathan Richmond song I haven't heard in a long time. So I put that on and then it started playing, you know, random songs as Spotify does. And um, uh-huh. uh, Dance and Mess Around came on like by B-52s. And I uh-huh. B-52s are so incredible in terms of like being so minimal and so creative and songs like mess around mm-hmm. even rock lobster like i was 12 when that came out 100 pretty amazing i mean i had the same thing when i saw gossip the first time right oh, it was it was so that good. thing of like how does that come out of three people three people it was like it was like being slapped in the face with something it was like and the b-52s had that as well it was just it was like how can that amount of people make what I just witnessed. Where did that come from? It's like one instrument. It's not like, it's so not mm. jammy. It's just like straight to the point. Um, I want to ask you, my dear, what are you listening to at the moment? What is choking your chicken right now? Floating your boat? I just listen to a lot of nasty girl hip hop music. Which may I say you probably opened the door for well, in many ways? I don't know. I don't know. I mean... I feel like it's next level and I'm so proud and happy about it. Cali with three eyes. Uh-huh. Just all of them, like Flo Millie and Bia and, you know, even Ice Spice, like whatever. I just love all of them. I'm just like, another one. Yes, yes. I want to check out. So Cali with three eyes. I'm going to check yeah. them out. Yeah, oh, I love her. We wouldn't have a WAP without peaches. Oh, I don't know about that, but... I'm convinced. We wouldn't have a WAP without Little Kim, let's say that. But you know, Meryl, I have to confess, because like when we meet, it's always 
very sweet and I could talk to you for for ages. I feel like we have a very lovely connection. But in getting ready for today, I was kind of going back over your back catalogue and stuff. And I was a bit starstruck. I kind of like was a bit, wow. fuck, wow, it's amazing what you've accomplished and all that you've done and the influence that you've had. And my favorite fact from the last few days of reading about you was I think you're the only artist that I, you know, I grew up on top of the pops. And I think you're the only artist I've ever heard that was so rock and roll for talking the pops that they didn't show it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the story. But do you want to know the real reason? Please, please. It wasn't a hit. What they would do is that ah. they would, you know, record extra songs in case they became a hit. Ah, okay, okay. And Set It Off wasn't a hit. So, mm. But I do have the footage. Actually, there's a documentary coming out about the Teachers of Peaches anniversary tour. Uh-huh. And some of that footage is there and it's super awkward. Oh, really? Because people are just like, who is this? Ugh, I don't like it. I don't wait. I've never heard this song, but ooh. I kind of figured it wasn't Fuck the Pain Away because they wouldn't let that on the BBC, I think. Yeah. What are you up to at the moment? You mentioned that you're rehearsing and doing something in Yiddish, you told me. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm part of an experimental exploration of Jewishness mm-hmm. with a great director named Ariel Ashbel, who's uh, of Yemen Jewish descent. And um, this project uh-huh. was supposed to happen like five years ago and finally got funding. And it's very delicate right now. And I think it's actually a good time because mm-hmm. everybody involved is very open, good politics. And the exploration is all about that too, like questioning the cultural and mm. more cultural than political. Um, but for me, mm. my takeaway from growing up Jewish is my dad speaking Yiddish. My dad would speak Yiddish. And this whole obsession with that era, Barbara Streisand. So um, when Ariel asked me to be part of this production, I was like, I don't have time to be part of an ensemble, but what I really want to do is sing Don't Rain on My Parade in Yiddish. So we got a modern Yiddish theorist, I guess, <laughs> mm-hmm. to help construct the lyrics in a way where it has, because Yiddish has these crazy sayings. It's just like, because it, it's a, a spoken language only. It wasn't really a written language and a very nomadic language in the way that it was Hebrew mixed with German, but also mixed with Italian and French and you know, a, a lot of different influences. So, and the, the the terms are like, you can't dance at two weddings with one tushy or like, don't bang on my kettle or like, go take a shit in the lake. You know, just like, so using these phrases instead of one-to-one lyrics. So, and it's quite challenging because it's very wordy. <laughs> you tried to cut cut it down, but it's very wordy. Mm. And I'll be performing that in December. And I'm still doing a few more shows. Yeah. That's exciting. I want to come and um, I want to come and see that. It's interesting, you know, to work with a language that hasn't really been written so much or documented mm-hmm. because it's very, uh, what's the word? Um, the transference of it is very ethereal almost. Yeah. It's, uh, it's quite a way to work. I feel like Yiddish is a punk language, you know, it's kind of a punk language. So it feels good. It's such a pleasure chatting with you. I know you're super busy and it's uh a big honor to have you. Oh, very, it's a I'm pleasure. Very I, I'm grateful and I enjoy talking to you. Well, I'm going to see you Such soon. Such a beam of light. You've been listening to Queerly Beloved with me, Cormac. 
You can find the playlist of all the music featured in today's episode in the episode description. And while you're there, please do hit subscribe so you don't miss out on my conversations with other talented people. A big thank you to Michael Lane, my producer, my manager, Melissa Taylor at Tailored Communication, and of course, to Amazon Music for their support. Take care of yourself. All the best. Bye.